Our second reading comes from 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 22. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations <coughs> have. <clears throat> but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to God, and God told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel reported what God had said to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will be assigned to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But God will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us, and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before God. God answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, in Jesus Christ, you have given us freedom. You have set us free to work for the freedom of all people. As we gather 
around your word and allow that word to come to life in us. We pray that we might be your liberating presence within the world you love so much. Amen. We live our lives in the rhythm of a variety of calendars. We have the church calendar with its observance of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and so on. The rhythm of the life of Christ pulsing throughout the year and in this moment. And we have our civic calendar with national and other traditional observances, MLK Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Juneteenth, Labor Day. Even though they are not explicitly religious, civic holidays do give us the chance to reflect on how our life of faith intersects with what is being celebrated and observed in our national life. The 4th of July is not a religious holiday. It's not a Christian holiday. It's part of our national calendar. It is a secular holiday. It does, though, once a year give us the chance to stand at the intersection of our faith and public life and ask, how do we live here? On Independence Day, how do we live our life of faith in the United States? What does it mean to live in the way of Jesus in the context of this particular nation and its promises at this particular moment in time, our moment? This morning's scriptures, even more specifically, invite us to stand at the intersection of freedom and of power and ask that question there. How do we live our imperfect lives faithfully in the context of this nation at the intersection of freedom and power? This morning's text from the Hebrew scriptures is all about power power over, and it expresses some timeless truth. God has brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. They've wandered through the desert trying to learn how to live free, and they've settled in a new land. Some tribal leaders have risen up, judges, and they have, for the most part, been a disaster. In this morning's scripture, we meet the prophet Samuel. He is a good guy, but his sons have been running the place, and they are corrupt. And so the people say to Samuel the prophet, go tell God, give us a king. We're done with trying to figure this out on our own with you. We're done with these so-called judges. We're done with, we're tired of being different. Give us a king, just like all the other nations. Samuel relays the message, furious at the people, and God says, don't get angry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting life with me but make sure they know what they're asking for. Go tell them what kings do. And Samuel does just that. You say you want a king, well, here's what kings do. Kings will take you to war. Not only that, they'll take your sons and your daughters and conscript them into their war machinery and into all their ways for amassing wealth. Kings will take, take, take. They'll take your land and your harvest. No one will be safe, not your family, not your servants, not you. Kings will enslave you. Are you really willing to give up your freedom? Are you willing to give a king all that power? 
This morning, Scripture names the timeless truth that power over in human hands tends toward oppression, even more so when that power is concentrated unchecked in the hands of one or a few. That's true for the people in the Scripture demanding a king, and we can look back on history and see that play out again and again in almost every type, every form of government. It was foremost in the thinking of the framers of our national constitution, first in their break from a corrupt monarchy, and then as they tried to build a government that would have structures to try to keep that power over in check. They called that power tyranny. As one historian explains, the evil they had in mind was the usurpation of power by a single individual or group or the circumvention of the law by rulers for their own benefit. Aware of the dangers of tyranny of power over, the framers of the Constitution did two things. First, the framers set forth a government with specified, limited powers. We know some of this from our civics classes. They created three branches of government with checks and balances, and importantly, the powers given those branches were constrained. Most of the limited powers were vested in the legislative branch, the people's elected representatives, the Congress, the president, and the courts were given far few powers. And ultimately, any power not specifically listed was reserved respectively to the states and then to the people. But even that limited enumeration of power didn't feel like enough to hold the threat of tyranny at bay. Before the Constitution was ratified, work began on a Bill of Rights, amending the Constitution even as it was being adopted with a list of affirmative rights protecting individual freedom and restraining the power of government out of areas of individual life. Freedom of religion and speech and protest and assembly, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, the right to a trial by jury, and the Bill of Rights made clear that the rights it recognized weren't limited to the rights specifically listed. Our rights and our freedom are broader than that one list. That's in the Ninth Amendment. But we know those freedoms weren't for all people. You've heard me acknowledge many times that the Constitution as originally written was fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed in all the ways that it protected the enslavement of black Americans. We know the people excluded from the promises of the Constitution at its inception. People of color, indigenous people, women. It would take almost a century of political action and a bloody civil war to reach the point where the Constitution was at long last amended to finally guarantee equal protection of the law and due process of law to all people. Abolishing slavery and giving all Americans, at that time all American males, the right to vote with another amendment nearly 60 years later giving women the right to vote. And we know the resistance that has persisted since then to the promise of equal protection of law. Our primary continuing work as Americans is the dismantling and repair of the harm done by systems and structures of racism and power over that flow from what many have called the Constitution's original sin. Both this morning's scriptures 
and the Constitution place us at the intersection of freedom and power. That space where we live out our lives within the systems and structures of the nation we inhabit, we live in the tension of freedom and power. And we have felt that tension between freedom and power in our bones these past few weeks. For a number of weeks, we have relived and learned more about the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol that threatened the constitutional transition of power on January 6, 2021. In congressional hearings, we have witnessed again a violent insurrectionist mob storming the Capitol, attacking and in one instance killing Capitol Police, hunting down the Vice President and the Speaker of the House with threats of violence, trying to overturn and steal an election. This week, we watched as a courageous young woman, Cassidy Hutchinson, stepped forward and told us even more. Hutchinson was with the president and in the White House that day. We now know that the president knew that the mob was armed, but then actually directed that security measures be disabled, saying, they're not here to harm me. We know that the president tried to join the mob at the Capitol, stopped only by his Secret Service detail. We know that he refused a flood of entreaties from advisors to step in, call off the mob, defend the Constitution. And we know that when he heard that the mob was threatening the life of his vice president, he shrugged and tweeted his support. The framers of the Constitution feared tyranny. The usurpation of power by a single individual or group or the circumvention of law by rulers for their own benefit. Beware what kings do. We are grateful. Our constitutional system proved resilient yet again and at the same time we are more acutely aware of how fragile it is and how close we came. And then, as we experienced again that struggle for power, we also experienced a series of Supreme Court decisions that began to redraw the landscape of our constitutional freedoms. Perhaps the most radical among those decisions was the court's reversal of Roe v. Wade. The disagreement of Roe v. Wade has been one of the most hotly contested issues in our nation. I think one of the problems is that too often reporting of the issues glosses over, skips over what the Roe decision actually held and did. Roe v. Wade built on a long line of cases that recognize the constitutional liberty and freedom that individuals have to shape and live out the life of family. It's often called the right of privacy. This long line of cases stretching back at least a century has reiterated again and again the freedoms and rights afforded under the Constitution to procreate and form families, to marry, including the right to marry persons of a different race and more recently persons of the same gender, to plan for family, including the right to use contraception, and to raise children and direct their upbringing, freedoms and rights protected by the Constitution. 
Roe ventured into the challenging disputes over abortion and the government's power to limit a woman's constitutional freedom to reproductive choice. Roe was not a constitutional free-for-all. No. The Roe decision set out to balance the complex set of constitutional interests asserted. Yes, the constitutional right of women to reproductive choice and the interest of government in assuring safe medical procedures and protecting emerging life. The Roe decision structured that balance along concepts of viability and trimesters, and that balance held and worked for some 50 years. But on June 24, 2022, the court took the radical step of overruling longstanding precedent and struck down both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In an unprecedented assertion of power, the court eliminated a constitutional right, a woman's constitutional right to reproductive autonomy and choice. To be clear, on the day before that decision, women had that constitutional right. And on the day of the decision, women no longer had that right. The court moved dramatically the balancing line between women's freedom under the Constitution and the power that states have over women's bodies. The assaults on both our democratic processes and our constitutional rights have shaken many to our core. Now, I should recognize that within our community, there likely is a range of opinion. There may be those who welcome this decision out of a deeply held commitment to emerging life. There are many of us, though, myself included, who grieve deeply at the abrogation of a constitutional right, at the elimination of any balancing of constitutional interests, and at the harm that will come to women and families across the nation. We already see so-called trigger laws going into effect that ban abortion with virtually no exception, not for the health of the mother, not for incest or rape, not for crisis pregnancy. Laws that seek to control the bodies of women no matter what the reality, no matter what the cost. The glib response is that women can travel to another state. But we know that the brunt of these laws will fall disproportionately on women without the means to travel, women who are most vulnerable, and women of color, we are shaken. And there is a temptation to despair. Power has spoken. And today we are a little less free. Let's go back to our morning scriptures. It may be surprising that after Samuel warns the people of what power does, the people still say, give us a king. What's more surprising to me, though, is that God then says, okay. 
In this scripture, God warns what power over does, and God also recognizes and gives the people agency. The agency to choose together how they will live. All through their wilderness wanderings, what God desires is a partnership. The people living directly in relationship with God. Again and again, God invites them into lives of freedom. Lives that respect the dignity of all persons that stand against oppressive power. That work for the well-being of the most vulnerable in our midst. In the Hebrew scriptures, most often the poor, widows, orphans, and migrating peoples. And then we return to the New Testament text we've read for the past two weeks. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. The freedom to live and work for the freedom of all people. This is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have come to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blinded, release to the captive, freedom for all who are oppressed. The good news in these scriptures lies in our agency and in our freedom. The agency and freedom that God gives us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit alive in us. Lives that work for freedom, for the common good, for the well-being of all people. Now I've been going back and forth between the scripture and the constitution. So I I should say this to be clear. Our identity and our primary citizenship is in Christ forever and always. We are a part of God's new creation set in this world to live by the power of the Spirit alive enough, us lives of healing justice in peace. Our citizenship in any nation, in this nation, is our context. It is the place and the space we are given to live out our life of faith, to live out our identity in Jesus Christ. In our context, In this nation, the Constitution still carves out a broad range of freedoms and rights that give us the opportunity, even in the face of power over, to live lives that work for the freedom of all people. Those rights are ours to claim, ours to use, ours to embody. Last week, we looked at the fruits of the Spirit and asked, which of these will we ground ourselves in and embody today? This week, let's ask the same of our freedoms. Which of these will we individually and together use and embody to work for freedom and for the common good? All these issues we've been discussing, they're now to be contested in legislatures and at the ballot box. Will we choose freely to speak, freely to assemble, freely to petition our government? Will we commit ourselves to the right to vote, not only showing up at every election, but working diligently to oppose voter suppression measures, to assure free access to the polls, and to secure for all people the right to vote? In a nation that claims itself to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people, it is never true. It is never true that we are powerless. It is still true. It is still true that we are free. On this July 4th weekend, in our moment, in this moment, we stand at the intersection of our faith and public life. We stand in the tension of freedom and power, and we remember these things declared long ago just as true and alive today. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights 
and then among those, among those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We remember it is for freedom Christ has set us free.